On Saturday afternoon, there was scarcely anyone on the Bryan plantation. Monday to Friday, they worked in the fields from the time the sun was a half circle of orange over the eastern edge of the world until it was half a circle of red over the western edge. On Saturday, though, they were allowed to stop working while the sun was still glad from the top of the sky. They laid their hose across their shoulders and with much laughing and talking went to their shacks, washed, put on clean clothes and started for Bryan Town, a mile and a half of dusty road to the south. Many walked, but those who could squeezed onto already crowded mule wagons. By the time the wagons got to town, sometimes there were people hanging from the sides, their feet dragging in dust. It was Saturday and only those too old or too sick stayed behind. Bryantown was too small frame houses across from the railroad tracks at the southern end of the plantation. The train went by twice a day, but no one had ever known it to stop. Who would be getting off at Bryantown? And no one would be leaving, not without Captain Bryan's permission and no one dared ask for such. Captain Brian had been known to kill niggers for less. Although everyone called it Brian Town, it didn't appear on any maps or government records. It wasn't really a town, and even if it had been, that word would not have been an adequate or accurate description. In reality, it was a small country of some 400 acres of rich, Mississippi Delta land. 500 blacks, including children and infants, ruled by Captain Bryan. He owned the land and the shacks the people lived in, sold them the food they ate, the clothes they wore on their backs, the cotton seed they put on the ground, and the tools they farmed with. And although slavery had been declared illegal 60 years before, the blacks within Captain Bryan's 400 acres lived no differently than their parents and grandparents had. Some of who still lived and remembered the day Captain Bryan's father had told them they were free. On Saturday afternoon, Captain Bryan could be found in the second of the two frame shacks. This was the store or commissary, as it was called. It was well stocked with chewing tobacco, snuff, brightly colored bolts of clothes for dresses and shirts, fat bag and grits, patent medicine and coarse moonshine whiskey. All afternoon, Captain Bright stood behind the counter, taking items from the shelves and noting the price beside the person's name in his leisure book. Back during slavery, his father had decided what niggas needed and passed it out to them. Captain Bryan believed in treating his niggas a little better. He let them come to the commissary and get whatever they wanted. On Saturday, people went to the commissary first to do their buying and pay their respect to the dead ducks. They stood at the counter and watched while Captain Bryan added another figure to the long line of figures already under their names and wondered if, at settling up time, the ducks were going to keep them in debt for another year. Well, the ducks got me again this year, one would say jokingly to another 
on that cold November day when they line up outside the commissary to settle their accounts. Captain Brian look in that big book of his and he says he deduct for the medicine I had for the children and he deduct for the cotton seed and the new plow and the new shoes and clothes and the chewing tobacco and the snuff for my mama and the moonshine and the food and the rent and he put all the ducks together and he say well Sam you owed me $200 from last year and the cotton you and your family raised this year brought in $900 you did a real good job this year but y'all spent $1,100 for rent and the cotton seed and that new plow and all the rest. So that means you end up owing me $400. Sure, I'm sorry about that, Sam. Thought you was going to get out of debt this year. Well, you work hard like a good boy and I believe you might make it out of debt next settling up time. Sam or whoever it was, since all their stories were the same, would shake his head. It's like my old papa used to say, ain't all, ain't all. A figure is a figure, all for the white man, none for the nigger. Everyone would love hearing the words of the old ones again, and their laughter was the laughter of the old ones. After paying their respects to the ducks, they moved outside to drink their moonshine playing cards, shoot dice, and do whatever else might be necessary to forget the week that had passed and to push away the week that was coming. By nightfall though, Musa started to go back to their shacks to go to bed to rise early for the church the next morning. Some remained, however, and moved inside the other building of Bryant, the cafe. No one knew why it was called that since no food was served. It was merely a big room with chairs and tables where the serious Saturday night gambling and drinking took place. Generally, a guitar player was there too, playing and singing the blues that inhabited the lives of the listeners like another heart. In the far corner of the cafe near the door sat a big, dark-skinned man with a 45 in a holster strapped around his waist. Black Emmett, they called him. He was in charge of the cafe and was Captain Brian's right-hand man. They also called him Cap and Brian's nigger, because instead of working in the fields, it was his job to keep order amongst the blacks. Emmett was hated, but he didn't care. At least he didn't have to get out of the fields and work like a mule. Cracking a drunk nigger's head was easier and more fun than picking cotton. And he didn't have to. He got paid in cash. Emmett could see the entire room from the corner. And the figures were mere silhouettes in the faint light of the cold oil lamps on each table. But Emmett didn't watch people. He looked for motion. Any kind of unusual motion would, which would indicate that somebody was reaching for a knife or a gun or that a fight was starting. He didn't understand why Kevin Bryant cared if the niggas killed each other. Who would notice one nigger less? Understanding or not, he was supposed to stop them from killing one another. Most of the time, he did. But sometimes the first thing he knew 
was that someone was screaming. Emmett would get a couple of men to drag the body outside and Saturday night would continue on its way towards Sunday morning. It was late afternoon when Rambler came into town, his guitar across his back. He was a medium-sized, dark-skinned man whose skin seemed to glow back from someplace deep inside. His black color swallowed his facial features and even the whites of his eyes seemed to be hiding in the surrounding darkness. His large lips were in a straight line and even when he smiled showing his white teeth, his mouth didn't appear to like the smile. As he stood on the railroad tracks looking across the field at the commissary and cafe, his arms hung loosely at his sides. He held his head erect and his shoulders were stooped and bent from a life of cotton. After many moments, he walked slowly down the embankment towards the people clustered in small groups outside the cafe and the commissary. He hadn't wanted to stop at the little town whose name he didn't know. It was too small. He wouldn't make more than two dollars and all the whiskey he could drink, but two dollars was more than he had and it was late and he was tired. He had been walking the tracks all day. Looks like we got us a guitar player, said a voice as he walked up. Someone laughed. Somebody better go tell Joe Jr. that he got some competition tonight. Rambler heard them but gave no indication that he had. Joe Jr. snorted to himself. On every plantation, there was somebody who thought he could play the blues. Sometimes he could, but none of them could stand up to him. He was a rambler. He could make a guitar do everything except pick cotton and chew tobacco. He hoped Joe Jr. wouldn't get angry when the people started telling him to shut up so this here new man can play. That was always the way it went. Sometimes he would find himself in a fight with the local blues picker, who until that night had been king of the roost. Rambler had to be careful of the women too. He'd never understood why, but it seemed like women just couldn't resist the guitar player. Many nights he had come close to getting killed by some plantation hand who thought Rambler was trying to take his woman. Can you play that box? Someone asked. He nodded. I reckon I can, he responded quietly. Well, let's go in the cafe here and just see. Yeah, let's do that, somebody else added frankly. I don't think he know a thing about no music. What your name, honey? A woman came up to him and asked. Rambler. Rambler what? Just Rambler. Where you from? Someone else wanted to know. He shrugged. I don't know. You don't know? Oh man, what kind of story is that? You ain't running from the law, is you? Someone else asked. Ah ah, Rambler replied. Then how come you don't want to say where you're from? Because I don't know. He was telling the truth. The last time he'd seen his mother had been six years ago. He'd been 15 then. One night, when she and his brothers and sisters were asleep, he'd slung his guitar over his back when he'd heard the train whistle blow run through the fields 
and caught the freight as it showed to enter the as it slowed to enter the steep curve just before it crossed the river that had been on Fields plantation outside Eland, Mississippi. But that wasn't where he was from. He didn't have a home and had nothing but contempt for anyone who called a shack on a white man's plantation a home, not him. Even when he was a little boy being taught to be cotton by his mother, he knew he was going to get out of those fields as soon as he could. Cotton. Everybody's life was ruled by it. From the spring rains when the plowing and the planting began until late November when they went through the fields picking up the cotton scraps. And then, at settling up time, nothing. The cabin will tell you that maybe next year you could get out of debt if you worked a little harder. Ah ah, Rambler said to himself. As long as the cabin added up the figures, there was no way anyone was going to get out of debt. That was why he had become a blues singer. He got up when he wanted to, went where he wanted to, and nobody could make him do otherwise. And he kept moving to make sure Satan never caught up with him. Rambler walked with the people into the already crowded cafe. Behind the noise, he could hear the sound of a guitar in a voice. He looked towards the front of the room and saw a medium-sized man in overalls, sitting on a chair, playing and singing. That must be Joe Jr., he thought. Rambler was scarcely listening, though, because he knew that Joe Jr. was singing to no one else but him. People were playing cards, laughing, talking, and not dancing. People didn't sit still when Rambler played. They couldn't. His music made them dance, whether they wanted to or not. Many nights people danced so much that the floor started to cave in and he'd had to stop playing to keep the house from literally falling down. Before you can play, someone said to him, we got to talk to Emmett. Rambler didn't need to be told who Emmett was. His name was always different, but his job was the same.